everybody. Sorry to ruin your evening. I know you're all expecting Cody, but uh, he believes he has the flu in his home. So we believed that nobody from his home should ever leave that house until there's no flu in their home because I don't want the flu. Uh, But we are in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25. It's like a throwback sermon for me. I last taught this section of scripture uh, in 2007, I believe. So it's been a couple of years for me. So uh, we'll see if I remember any of this stuff, right? Um, uh, As we're approaching the book of Deuteronomy, just remember uh, the the theme for this is a call to remembrance. The book of Deuteronomy is uh, a a repetition uh, of things that Moses has already taught. But you have to understand there's a generational difference that when this law was originally brought, Uh, with the nation of Israel. They were to go to the promised land as they were leaving Egypt. However, they were sinful. So that whole generation had to die off. The next generation now is about to enter the promised land. So the law is being repeated for them so that they could hear this law one more time. And so Moses will preach what is the book of Deuteronomy, these three sermons here in the book of Deuteronomy, and then he'll die. (laughs) So rough day for him at the office, but... uh, uh, a good repetition generationally. I think that uh, you can see that through the, the history, the pattern of the nation of Israel, that they had these generations that believed God, and then the next generation failed. And then the next generation repent and believe God, and the next generation would fail. And it was this cycle that came because there wasn't a diligence by this generation to teach the next generation. I think that's important for us as well. Uh, when we get into this section, though, in Deuteronomy 24, we're going to do two chapters, 24 and 25, because... I like to power through these things. Uh, But in Deuteronomy 24 and 25, uh, it's a section of Scripture called sundry laws. Uh, In my Bible, uh, for us, miscellaneous laws. Uh, And so it's going to just be like law, 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 law. Just this long list of laws. And I really can't think of anywhere else um, outside of the, the church setting where people just gather together to hear somebody read the law to them. Um, Unless... You know, they're in court and they had no choice but to be there and have the the law read to them. Uh, Maybe a lawyer and a police officer has to go through and learn these things for their job or something like that. But rarely do I think they sing songs at the beginning and the end. Um, But this for us is an act of worship. Uh, We study the Old Testament for specific reasons, though. Uh, We believe that the Old Testament reveals the heart of God. We believe that the Old Testament gives us an understanding of the purposes of God. Uh, We believe that the Old Testament reveals Jesus to us. We're going to see those things layered into the Old Testament as we go through them. So when we're going through these laws, we're going to see that there's these various types of laws in the Old Testament. There's the the moral laws, like things that every place in the world that this is true, thou shalt not kill. Moral laws. There's going to be civil laws. Civil laws are like roads and highways and speed limits and things like that. Things that a civil society needs in order to function properly. And then there's ceremonial laws, laws that are required uh, for the priestly worship to just go through the religious acts. This section here uh, is more in the civil law category. These are just things that were pertinent to the nation of Israel at that time. But behind them, we can look at the motivation of the things that God is saying. And so we're actually going to do that as a little bit of an exercise as we go through this. You might recall uh, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22, he was asked, what is the greatest law? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so one of the things I want to do as we go through this 
uh, is to kind of look at each one of these and ask ourselves this question. Is this about loving my neighbor? Is this about loving God? Sometimes it's both. I think it's always both, to be honest with you. I think at the heart of it, all law comes down to loving God as we respond in faith and obedience to the things that God would ask you to do. Um, But uh, we don't follow these laws per se because we're not of the nation of Israel. They're, They're written for a different people. But we can follow the heart behind these laws, even if we don't uh, necessarily look at them in a legal sense, because the heart behind these laws was the heart of God. The other thing we have to remember, though, that part of the Old Testament law was helping people recognize that they weren't righteous in their own accord, that there were things that they were going to do that were sinful. As they did those sinful things, the law establishes certain punishments and sacrifices in order to restore relationship with God. Well, that's a a pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The whole point of the Old Testament law was to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. So as we discovered that we couldn't live perfectly righteous all the time, we recognized that we needed some sort of sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. That sacrifice, of course, was Jesus. So I'm just kind of relaying that groundwork. I know you've heard it before from me, but just want to relay that again uh, as we get down into these. uh, And then we'll try to look at them in, in some practical senses as well to kind of help us think through things. But Let's hit the first law here. This is one of the bigger ones that we're going to get to read. It's five whole verses for this law, so hang on. I'm sorry, four verses, but I'm going to add the fifth one on because it's a similar subject. Verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled." For that is an abomination before the Lord, and shall not bring, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And then when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So uh, the general flow of this is, is the question of remarriage. For the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, there were rules about remarriage. Uh, So the scenario that he's laying out here is a husband and wife are divorcing. The wife then goes out, marries somebody else. She gets divorced again. Can the original husband marry her again following that divorce? In the Old Testament law, the answer was no. You couldn't do that. In fact, it was described here as an abomination before the law, before the Lord, and it brings sin on the land which the Lord your God gives to you as an inheritance. This was a a pretty strong statement here from God. But you kind of have to follow the flow of all of this. First of all, why are they getting divorced? In verse 1, it's because some indecency was found in her. Now, feminists are already mad because it's the assumption of this law that she's the one who's indecent, right? Uh, But the New Testament makes it clear that it's not just about the her, it's anybody who's caught in the act of adultery. That's the idea. She's been found indecent. In fact, another way to put the word indecent there, the the literal Hebrew there, uh, is nakedness and shame. So she's been found in her nakedness and shame. Uh, Jesus interprets this for us, by the way, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, where he points out that it is, in fact, adultery that, uh, that Moses was concerned about. So in that situation, she has broken the marriage covenant through adultery, 
They end up getting divorced. They don't have to get divorced, by the way. They don't have to. Jesus also made that clear. That wasn't God's intent. That wasn't his heart. Some people look at this and they say, this is a command from God. In these circumstances, you must get divorced. It's not a command from God. Jesus clarifies that also in the New Testament. He says, Moses didn't command this. He allowed this. It's allowed in these circumstances only because of hardness of heart. Because your heart has been so hardened by the sin of this person, and maybe honestly even in your own sin, and your own unforgiveness, that's why you're going to go through this process. You're allowing it, but it's not a requirement. That being said, if that wife in this scenario goes out and marries another man, and then he finds some indecency in her as well, she's got two strikes against her, right? But then she tries to return to her previous husband the law says, no, she, she broke off this marriage. She's now started another marriage over here. You don't get to play that game. In fact, Jesus calls that adultery on the behalf of the husband then for accepting her back, for bringing her back into his life because she's now married to this guy. Even though she's gone off and done something else, you're no longer one in God's eyes. There's this clarity that he's trying to bring about there. I don't want to spend too much time uh, on divorce there, but just understand uh, that it, it's, a, it's a serious thing from God's perspective. He calls it an abomination. There's a number of things uh, that we'll see later that he calls an abomination uh, before him. Uh, but his view on that is that it brings sin into the land. Again, he's trying to create in the nation of Israel a different type of people that would be different than all the nations around them so that they could see through this set-apart people the heart of the God that they represent. When the people act like the rest of the nations, it destroys the reputation of God in the eyes of the rest of the nations. So for God, it's important that they do these things. Uh, another thing dealing with marriage here in verse 5, which I think is a cool rule, uh, Family Medical Leave Act in the Old Testament law. Uh, in this case, if a man gets married, one year, no deployments if you're in the military. I think that's a wonderful rule. I uh, actually was able to use that tonight. Uh, I was doing premarital counseling with a couple and uh, he uh, uh, got, uh, he's in the military, they're getting married at the uh, end of December, and then he immediately gets a call this week that uh, they would like to send him to, I don't know what kind of school it is, some specialized military school that he was invited to because he scored so highly uh, on this test, the, the top score, he wins this thing, and they're like, yeah, we're going to send you to this school. He's like, great, when is it? And they're like, January 7th. He's like, don't care, not going. He's going to be married for seven days at that point and leave his wife? No, he's going to take that year and he's going to uh, invest in, as it says here, he shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, if you're married and you didn't give one year to making your wife happy, you can just do that now. Husbands, you have my permission to take the next year and just make your wife happy. And, you know, if you've been married 70 years, she'd say... <laughs> At least I got one. Anyway, verse 6, the next law. No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. I'm going to skip that one and come back to it because they're going to go back to this idea of pledges here in a minute for different purposes. Uh, so verse 7 then, the next one. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge evil from among you. Uh, seems like a big deal, right? Like if you kidnap somebody, that's a big deal. But in America, we don't have the 
death penalty for somebody who kidnaps someone, do we? That seems pretty extreme to us. However, I do think if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, you might recall that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and he was taken away, kidnapped away. And God did not like that. God used it. But it brings to light just the importance of these things. And again, how does God look at this? It's purging the evil from among you. There's this community sense to these laws. It's about holiness, not for me personally, for us. There's a communal nature to these laws. It's to to make this society more civil in the eyes of the world around them. Verse 8, be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all that the Levitical priests teach you, as I have commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. So uh, you might not remember all the things that the priest would require you to do, but if you want to, you can study this out. If somebody has leprosy in the Old Testament, the laws are listed out in Leviticus 13 and 14, all the leprosy laws... um, Extra credit, though, if you're studying those out, see if you can see a picture of sin and salvation in there. There's some cool things in there. As you study out leprosy, it's used at times as a picture of sin and then the removal of sin. So neat things in there uh, that uh, you might see, uh, but I'm not going to get into that because, again, two chapters tonight. Um, But then he says, he, he couches this with this idea, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. This was covered in Numbers chapter 12. Uh, And ultimately what happened in Numbers 12, uh, Miriam and her brother Aaron decided they didn't need their other brother, Moses. And they figured they could kind of handle these things on their own. God did not approve of that. Moses was the mediator that he established at that time between him and man. And so uh, in response to that, a cloud comes over them and Miriam comes out of that cloud covered in leprosy. Leprosy was, on one part, a sign of sin. In other words, God had chosen in that moment to punish her for her sin by making her leprous. And again, that's part of the reason it's kind of looked at as an image of sin or a picture of sin. And you can see just how serious they take this idea, particularly with something like that, where that can now begin to spread. The picture of sin again, sin begins to spread. That's kind of the idea that he's trying to get across here. So you can look at it certainly from that perspective that God will bring punishment for sin. But also powerful in that story is when Moses saw his sister Miriam, he pleaded with God to forgive her and to cleanse her of leprosy. And God, in fact, did cleanse her of that. Because again, although we do have a God who punishes sin, We also have a God who forgives our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. The picture, the image is important for us. And we know that he cleanses us of our sin through the work of Jesus Christ. But we can see that highlighted there in the Old Testament. Now, uh, let's just kind of look at uh, this uh, next set of laws here in connection. I already read the one law in verse 6. No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge for he would be taking a life in pledge. Verse 10, add to that. When you make your neighbor a loan 
of any sort. You shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord and it becomes sin to you. So dealing here uh, with how we deal with people when we loan them or pay them, particularly God concerned here with those who are poor, needy, or oppressed in the land. So the first one in verse 6, uh, no one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone and pledge for it will be taking a life in pledge. Now that may not mean a whole lot to us, But what that's ultimately saying is you cannot take the tools that are required for them to do their job, the thing that they need to live. And so if they run a mill, you can't take their millstone and expect them to be able to pay you back someday. You've taken their only way of making money. It's like saying, you know, hey, uh, this carpenter wants a loan, so I want him to give me all his tools. He has no ability to make money. You've taken his tools. It would be impossible for him. You don't want to put them in a situation where they can never repay the debt. And when it's saying pledge there, by the way, we would think of that more as like collateral for a loan, something like that. Uh, the same, though, would go forward if you take a pledge from a poor man. All he has is a coat. Well, the law is pretty simple. If all he has to give you as a pledge is his coat, every night you have to give him his coat back so that he has something to sleep in, so he doesn't freeze to death. Now, there's another way to look at that. You could also say, if this guy's so poor that all he has is a coat and I have to go to the hassle of bringing his coat back every night, maybe I don't need to take a pledge. Maybe I can just offer to help him and if he repays me, great. If not, I've lost what I've given to him. But again, God's concerned about the poor, the oppressed, the needy. He talks in verse 10 about when you even go to get the pledge, When you go to their house to take this pledge, you stay outside, which I think is cool because it almost says, give the man the ability to still have some respect in his own house, that he can still feel like this is his own home, a place where he can be respected. You don't even get to go into his house. In addition to that, it says, verse 14, to not oppress someone who is poor or who is needy regardless of whether they're a countryman or an alien in your land. And by alien, it means somebody who's not an Israeli, somebody who's not a citizen. It doesn't mean somebody from outer space. Although I'm sure it applies somewhat universally if the aliens come to town and you hire them, you should still still have this same idea, and that is that you would pay them daily. Again, why is that important? I remember just uh, this last week talking to my parents. Uh, My parents were so excited when my dad got his first state job until they realized he got hired at the end of the month and they only pay once a month. So he had to go an entire month before he got his first paycheck. Well, if you enter in that job and you don't have any money, that means you're going an entire month with no money. But in this case, he says... 
No, pay them at the end of the day before the sun sets. For he is poor and sets his heart on it. It's sin if you do those things. If you oppress the poor and the needy, it is sin. In fact, Proverbs 14.31 says that it's an insult to God to do those things. James talks about that in James chapter 5. You can check that out as well. There's this whole idea at the beginning of James 5 about those who have money oppressing those who don't, taking advantage of those who don't. This is a real problem. And I do think, again, I always try to say one or two things that gets me in trouble in every sermon, so let me just have at it today. Uh, I do think that we as conservative Christian American Republicans, however you want to say it, right, we have to be careful that as we're standing strong for the laws, that we're not standing more strong for the laws than we are caring for those who are oppressed, poor, and needy. And it's too easy for us to say things like, well, if they would just work harder, if they would just do this, or hey, why doesn't he just become a citizen? Like it's some easy task. Like you could just walk up to the border and say, I'd like to be a citizen in the United States. I'm like, oh, well, come on in, bro. Just sign this piece of paper. No, it's like a 20-year process. I can just only talk from my own perspective. If I'm living in a country where my family is oppressed and I'm worried for their lives, I'm going to do whatever I can to bring them to safety. Now, I'm not talking about getting out of hand and all this stuff, freehand. That's all I've said. I'm just saying from you personally, that you personally not oppress people, that you personally can care for people in these circumstances. And historically, this has been true of the church, by the way. Historically, churches have been places of, of sanctuary, that people would flee to churches. And, and the church isn't going to take a stand and say this person's right or wrong. That's not their place. But they're also not going to let a person starve in their midst. This is one of the very things the nation of Israel was destroyed for, because there was no justice for the poor and the oppressed. It's one of the reasons God destroyed Israel. For us, that should be an important thing to us. It doesn't mean we can't be Republican. It doesn't mean we can't be conservative. But it does mean we have to be cautious about the way we handle these things. And I think sometimes, because we get into these battles with people who are ideologically out there from our perspective... We're so worried about winning this argument, this discussion. When really we should just be helping the person who needs help. Now this is for the other side of the aisle. I will just say this for the other side of the aisle. Most of the people I've met on the other side of the aisle wouldn't lift a finger to help anybody. They want the government to do it all. They want you to do it all. They're as responsible as anybody else when they see the poor and the needy, that they should do something about it. Instead of telling everybody else, you do something about it. They should be doing it. I was having this battle with a, a young man who honestly is one of the most godly young men I've ever met. Like he really is. I'm not saying anything bad about him. But it just seemed like he was time and time again uh, coming to this idea that the church never does anything, the church never does anything, the church never does anything, the church never does anything. And I'm like, well, wait a second, dude. Is that true? Like you go to a church, does your church never help anybody in need? Well, our church does. Okay, tell me about the other churches in your town. Did none of the other, well, there's other churches in town. Okay, let me tell you about my church. This is what we do. 
He was going this whole route worried about everybody else, like worry about you. You don't oppress the poor and the needy. You be responsible for those things. Anyway, enough of that. Verse 16, only because I'm keeping my eye on the clock. I only have an hour and a half left, so. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. As we know, the wage of sin is death, and everyone will be put to death for their own sin. One caveat, unless a sacrifice is paid for that sin, and in our lives, the sacrifice was paid by Jesus Christ. Now, there are some that would see this as a contradictory statement to the uh, Ten Commandments, where it does talk at one point about the iniquity of the Father being visited on the sons from generation to generation. Uh, They'll take that, first of all, into a weird spiritual place of generational curses that I think takes it a little further than Scripture intends. Um, But the other place they'll say is that it's a contradiction. No, it's not. Visiting the sin of the Father on the generations, the sin of a father has an impact generationally. But the punishment of death is not passed on generationally. In other words, if my dad commits a crime, I don't get put to death for it. But it will impact my life. It will change who I am, right? And if I commit a crime, my dad doesn't get put to death for it. But it does have an impact on his life. Sin has an impact generationally. And I do think you do see within society generations of people that suffer from the sinfulness of previous generations and they're stuck in that life because that's the life they grew up in. That's the life they know. And that's why you see in certain parts of our nation, even certain cities where it's just kind of generation after generation, certain neighborhoods even, generation after generation after generation of the same repeated sins. But the guilt lies at the individual level. The one who commits the sin is guilty of the sin. But the impact is generational. So, verse 17. Again, concerning the alien or the orphan or the widow, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to pick it up. It shall, not, it shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you, bear your, or when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go back over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of, our, of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Uh, this is, uh, again, a protection from the whole society, a protection that everyone within the community is invested in caring for the poor, the alien, the widow, the orphan, the needy people. And the way they do that is they leave a little extra. They're putting it in very agricultural terms because it was an agricultural society, right? So in agricultural terms, if you're uh, going through and harvesting your field and some of that 
doesn't get harvested. You don't go back the next day and, and get the last little bit. He says, no, leave some of that so that people can come through your field and pick up the extra. He talks about this in terms uh, of, of uh, beating an olive tree. So you've got an olive tree and you bang it and all the olives fall off the tree and then you pick up the olives. You don't go back and, and beat the tree again until you get every last olive. It's okay to leave some there, to have a little bit of extra to provide for the orphan, the poor, the needy in the land. A simple concept which we can apply to our own lives in various ways. The simplest way for me is just to, to recognize within our financial means that we always have a little bit left over extra to help those that we can help. That there would be some investment on our part. That we'd be invested in that purpose and in that process. And it really does have kind of this added benefit of it. It, it makes God look good when God's people take care of those who are needy around us. A cool thing happened this week at our church. So we have a, a benevolence program here at the church, but it's um, so when I first got here, we just didn't. We didn't really do much for benevolence, and we've slowly just kind of built that up over the years. And now through that program, um, you know, annually our budget is in the it's in the twenty four twenty five thousand range, something like that. Annually, of just cash that we set aside to just give out to people. And that's above and beyond anything we might do as a special collection, but that's just cash. And then on top of that, people will just randomly come to the church and say, hey, here's a gift card. If you have somebody that needs it, give it to them. Here's a gas card or here's a, a stack of cash. That happens sometimes or, or whatever. They'll just say, if you see a need, meet it with that. And so who knows what it actually is, right? And then if you go into our, our office where our uh, administrator, or not our administrator, our accountant is, she has this whole thing of books. And I imagine it's at least this big. And it's just every one of those is a sheet representing somebody that we've helped in our community here. So this week, um, one of the elementary schools called us and said, hey, we have a parent here whose battery died at the school and they don't have the funds to do anything about it. Would you be able to help them? So we were able to get a battery for this gal, right? But here's what's cool about that. I asked him, like, that's weird. Why is a school and... Uh, Carrie, our receptionist, said, no, this has happened a number of times. It's, it's gotten out even to the schools that if they run across somebody that has a need, they can call Calvary Chapel. And that, I think God's like in heaven like, yeah, that's, that's one of mine right there. That's one of mine. Isn't that exciting? That's exciting. Uh, to me, it's exciting. Uh, and you can have all sorts of ways. Sheila and I for years kept, uh, we've done all kinds of things. For, for a long time, I kept McDonald's gift certificates in my wallet. And if somebody said, We'll work for food. I will take them to McDonald's and I would feed them and I would try to like share the gospel with them. Not always successfully. I'm not, I'm not super good at evangelism beyond like I can work through a sermon with them. But mostly I just start asking them questions and we start a conversation. But then Sheila wanted to do that. I'm like, no way. You're not going to hang out with strangers and get murdered, raped, whatever. It's not going to happen. So we came up with this new idea of just filling bags in our cars that just have simple things like socks and Bible and a phone card back in the day when that was a thing and uh, not so cool anymore. But back then we're like, phone cards, wow, you can call people. Um, and then peanut butter and you know little fruit cans and things and we just keep them in our glove box. Somebody on the side of the road, roll the window down just enough to get the bag out because again, I don't want my wife getting harm done to her and she can hand the bag out. It's just something little that you can put into your life. Not everybody can do a lot of things, but if everybody does a little bit of it, we're doing a great job of representing the heart of God. Now, this is the point I want to make with all of those little things there. Each one of those things is God saying out loud to us, love your neighbor. 
Love your neighbor. That's what those laws were about. That's the foundation on which those laws were, that we would have a heart for that. And I see that actually in our church. I want to be honest. I see that over and over in our church. I don't think this is something like preaching at you. It's just the next passage. I do see these things in the people in our church. I see these things happen on a pretty regular basis. Um, so it's exciting for me to be able to see that. So the other side of this, though, when we talk about gleaning, there's a, an important connection here. When we talk about gleaning, uh, for me anyway, and maybe for many others, it brings to mind the book of Ruth. So Ruth was in that same circumstance, and she was sent to the field of Boaz. And she was there gleaning. She was falling behind the cart, and stuff would fall off the cart, and she would have, that's her. She can now take that home, whatever she could carry. She had that home. That was where she got her food. That was literally, if you want to put it in this sense, that was her job. Now, I like it for this sense. Number one, she's not begging. She has to work for it. She has to bend down. She has to pick it up. She has to carry it. She's got to harvest that stuff. She's got to, you know, she's got a part to play in this. Number two, it was the individual that did this who made the decision to, to just follow this law to make sure there's provision. And it's not like he's like chasing these people off, like, could you just go away? No, the, the way that tells it in the story of the book of Ruth, this was every day at Boaz's field. Every day in his field, there were those just following behind. The other thing that was cool, Boaz would throw extra down for Ruth. <laughs> you know, just a little bit of a sweetheart thing going on there. So that's cool. But then through Ruth, we find the lineage that leads us to King David and then to Jesus. In that lineage is this woman, Ruth, who was surviving by the provision of somebody in the nation of Israel who loved their neighbor. So that's a pretty cool thing to see as well. We're actually going to get to see more about Ruth here in a few minutes, but chapter 25, more sundry miscellaneous laws. If there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judge decides their case... They justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Uh, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be bitten in, beaten in his presence with a number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, uh, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. Okay, so if this ruling from the judge comes down that the guilty party has to be beaten for the things that he did, which is a strange thing in our culture, I understand we don't do that. We have this interesting way of delaying punishment and considering time as punishment typically. And so somebody sits in jail for a certain amount of time. They've served their time. The Old Testament punishment was immediate. And then they went back to their life. They might have limped back to their life, right? But they went back to their life, right? So it's an immediate punishment. But the, the thing that's cool about this is the judge has to watch the punishment that he demanded, he has to be a part of it. He has to watch this person who he found guilty. So what does that make you want to do? It makes you want to make sure the guy's really guilty, right? You really want to make sure you believe this guy's guilty. Because you have to sit there and watch him take this whooping. By the way, Paul, five times this happened to him. Not once was he guilty. But the judge has to watch this happen. The other thing that I think is just kind of an interesting factoid, if you like factoids, uh, the limit here was 40 times. And so the Jews, by tradition, never went past 39. So they didn't accidentally go past 40. So they always cut it short by one just to be safe. Because again, they were really concerned about following 
the letter of the law, maybe not so much the heart of the law. Verse 4, often quoted scripture, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Uh, That just means, you know, while this ox is, is working for you, he should be allowed to eat. Paul steals that in the New Testament in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy uh, 5, where he applies that to the pastor. I don't know why pastors are compared to oxen. Um, However, I have told people over and over, like, if you want to describe my ministry, somebody pointed me in the direction, smacked me on the butt, and I'm just going to keep going that way forever until somebody turns me around, right? So that's, so maybe I am a lot like an oxen. But the idea was that the oxen is not going to be worked to death, He's going to have the ability, his mouth will be open so that he can eat while he's working. So he has the energy he needs. The same thing for those who are in ministry. Uh, You shouldn't work them to death. You should provide for them in some way. Um, Verse 5, which by the way you guys do, as you can see, I am not starving to death. I'm fine. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not marry outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if a man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and she shall declare, thus it has been done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Kinsman, redeemer, kind of the idea here, but... Um, we look at this, this is a weird law, right? Uh, this gal is married to a guy and then her husband dies and the rule is that the husband's brother now has to marry her. Sounds weird to us because we can only think of, of marriage in terms of romance novels, right? Like where's the romance in that? The idea though was an intention to protect, number one, the inheritance rights of the family, because they've had no children. Number two, to protect the woman who has no provision. Again, we're not living in America when we're writing this, right? In America, she would just go get a job and be like, okay, I could take care of my own business. I don't need that man. I'm good. Wasn't like that back then. It wasn't like that at all back then. She would have been cast to the bottom of society. She would have had no ability to care for herself. It was a provision for her, which to the, to the nations around Israel at that time, they would have been thinking, what is this guy? What are these guys doing? Why are they, why are they taking so much care of these lesser than people? But no, God says, I want you to love your neighbor. And so we have this kind of weird rule here, and it gets a little bit weirder. If he refuses to give her children. By the way, their firstborn child would have to be named after her first husband, just to keep that lineage idea clear there for inheritance purposes. But anyway, if that nearest brother refuses to marry her, she goes to the elders of the gate of the city, and then he has to come up and he has to give an account, and he says, look, I'm not marrying the woman, I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) She takes his shoe off and spits in his face, And they rename him the man with one shoe, basically. 
He will be marked for the rest of his life as the guy who wouldn't take care of his own family. A little bit of positive peer pressure, I would guess, in that circumstance. How does that connect, though, to some other things that happen in history? This actually happens also in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. The nearest relative is not going to marry Ruth, and so Boaz is the next nearest relative who is willing to marry. And so in that circumstance, he's able to marry Ruth, and then Ruth, of course, again, in the genealogy, getting us up to Jesus. Verse 11, I don't even know what to say about this one. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together, and the wife of one of them comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him, and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, you shall not show pity. God just says fight fair, that's all I got out of that. Um, Verse 13, you... There's, a, there's an I love, love your neighbor in there somewhere. I just don't want to spend too much time on it. Verse 13. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord. That's the second time we've seen that word abomination. And the idea is unfair weights. This is what I call the Karate Kid 2 rule. If you don't remember Karate Kid 2, he goes to Okinawa and the bad guy in that particular movie is, is buying vegetables from the people in the community and his weights are not real. They're not true. They're made out of soap. That causes all kinds of a stir. But that's what people would do is they were cheating people by having false weights. And God says that is an unjust abomination to the Lord. It's a horrible thing in the eyes of God to cheat and steal from your own countrymen. Again, because God wants us to love our neighbor, right? He wants us to love our neighbor. Abomination, by the way, is, is like kind of the, like the, the most offensive things to God. When he says this, an abomination, it's the most offensive things uh, to God. So, um, when you think through that in Scripture, there's, there's a long list of things that God calls an abomination. And we look at a lot of those things and we think, yeah, that's, that's right. That is an abomination. I was just looking through. I made a list here in my Bible. I won't read it all because it's a lot of things. But things like bestiality is in there. Child sacrifices are in there. Uh, devious-minded people. Haughty eyes. Lying. Murder. Uh, sacrifices to other gods. Idolatry. Uh, justifying wickedness, condemning righteous people, pride, perverse hearts. You see, it sounds like, yeah, that's an abomination when we're talking about some of the things on that list. And every once in a while, you're like, oh, that one touches a little close to home. But again, it puts us in this place where we recognize that our sin, our sin is offensive to God. And so we need to repent of our sins and confess our sins and be cleansed of our sins because we love God and we don't want to be offensive to Him. Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God? 
Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which your Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So this is a, a law that's to be applied when they get to the promised land. Again, they're, they're on their way to the promised land. They're ready to enter. This is their last set of instructions. It's a reminder for them that God has some unfinished business with the Amaleks. The Amaleks. The, Amaleks, yes. So the Amaleks, as the nation of Israel was coming up out of slavery, out of bondage, traveling through to get to the promised land where God would have them go, the Amaleks attacked the Israelites, which isn't too uncommon for one nation to attack another nation that's traveling through the land, right? Uh, they would see them as a threat, they would pillage and all these things. But the Amaleks were particularly offensive to God because they attacked the stragglers, the weak, the sick, the faint, those at the back. They went after the weak people first. And again, God does not like it when you harm the oppressed, the poor, the needy. God wants you to love your neighbor. And so he's so offended by this that he tells the Israelites, when you get to the land, I want you to wipe their memory. I want you to kill every last one of them. Some people look at this and say, this is why we believe God to be a genocidal God. They see something like this, that's horrific to them. But again, they don't understand even the most basic of doctrine, that the wage of sin is death. It was a deserved death. Interesting thing, though, that you can always see with God, where there's repentance, there's forgiveness. And you'll even see opportunities for all these four nations around the nation of Israel that they could repent and become like Jews. They could have opportunities for that. But uh, so the strange thing with the Amalek, Amalek, with the people of Amalek, Amalekites, thank you. I keep saying it backwards there, but the, people, the Amalekites from Amalek, a uh, strange thing about them, uh, King Saul becomes king. The first king in Israel, and he just kind of does a half-hearted job. He does attack them from time to time, but he never really wipes them out like they were supposed to. And then you see in 1 Samuel, when Saul is dethroned, God lists out the reasons why he wasn't acceptable as king. And one of them was he wasn't faithful to this rule to wipe them out. And they won't actually get wiped out for another 300 years when Hezekiah finally does it. Now, to, just to put that in perspective, 300 years they did not keep this instruction from God. We haven't existed as a nation for 300 years yet. Getting closer, we haven't even existed as a nation for 300 years yet. A rejection of God's instructions to them. And they just, generation after generation after generation, just decided not to do it. Why? Ultimately, because their priorities weren't the same as God's. That's ultimately what it came down to. That's not instructions for us, by the way, to wipe out everybody that we disagree with. That's not for us to decide. God's the judge. He has the authority to do that. I do not. Right? I don't have that authority. So that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying when the authority speaks, 
the highest of authorities, we should respond in good faith. Well, that is a lot of stuff in there. Now, you can ask yourself a question, by the way. Wiping out the Amalekites. Love God or love your neighbor? That's a love God, right? Because he asked you to do it. It's also a love your neighbor. Because this is a people who are seeking to destroy the oppressed, the weak, and the faint. You see how God is so concerned about that. And I think it should be for us as well. I think it's telling for us. It's important for us to think in those terms. And that happens again in a hundred different ways. There's many ways we can help out in those circumstances. We're not responsible for all the world's problems. We're just responsible for the ones that we can be responsible for. We can't care for everything, but I can care for the person who's right here when I have the means to do so. That's the difference there for me. It's that personal side of that that impacts our civil society. Amen? Well, Doug really wants to get up here and play his closing song, so I'm just going to cut it off there. I could have kept going, then a couple more chapters, but... Heavenly Father.